Well, I thought last week the kids got a joke and you didn't. So I'm going to tell one. <laughs> First of all, does Brent actually get you out of here at 11 o'clock? 11.15? I felt so rushed last week. Thank you. That just liberates me. All right, here we go. Um, so I used to teach preaching at NNU, and I told them to use a certain amount of decorum when you preach. You shouldn't go a little bit crazy with, you know, jokes and whatnot. So I'm going against my own rule, and I'm going to tell you a joke. It's actually somewhat related to the text. We're doing Mary and Martha today, and this is, joke is about three sisters. So, <clears throat> there were three sisters who were at Wednesday night Bible study. There was Ethel, there was Mabel, and there was Sarah. Well, Ethel it was only about four foot nine and going home at night and she kind of didn't see the curve up ahead, and they go over a cliff and they die. That's not the joke. Okay. Um, so they go up to heaven, and they come into the pearly gates, and Peter is there to welcome them in, and he shows them around heaven, and he says there's only one rule in heaven, only one. Don't step on a duck. Just don't do it. That's our one rule in heaven. Do not step on a duck. Well, Ethel, being Ethel, the very next day, um, stepped on a duck accidentally. And then all of a sudden, we see Peter coming toward Ethel um, with just the most ugly man. We'll just leave it at that since we're in church. A really ugly, ugly, ugly ugly man and chains the ugly man to Sarah for all of eternity as punishment for stepping on a duck. Well, the other two sisters, we're not going to do that, right? So Sarah actually is able to go about 10,000 years, but one day she kind of trips and accidentally steps on the duck. And the same thing happens. This really, really ugly man uh, is brought to Sarah, and they are chained together for all eternity. Well, Mabel doesn't want the same fate, and so she is absolutely um, precise and perfect in where she steps. She does not step on a duck. A million years goes by. And all of a sudden, she sees Peter coming. And with him is just this gorgeous, gorgeous man, right? And she's thinking, well, I made a million years. Maybe this, maybe this is, you know, my reward. And so he approaches, and they're chained together. And she says, do you understand what's going on? Do you know the rules here? He said, I don't know what's going on, but I stepped on a duck. <laughs> poor Mabel, poor Mabel. Luke chapter ten. Beginning with verse 38 this week. 
Last week, we did the parable of the Good Samaritan. This week, we are at the home of Martha and Mary. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. I can never read that text without thinking of the Brady Bunch. (laughs) Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Sorry. Um... You don't know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. (laughs) Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So we know the name of Mary and Martha. We know that um, John's gospel is where we get a a longer description of their relationship with Jesus, particularly, because in John, uh, we find the story of the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus is Mary and Martha's brother. And in that exchange, um, we see Mary, who is distraught and weeping, and we see Martha, who's very strong in her faith and affirms that she believes in Jesus, that he is the resurrection. Um, And Lazarus, of course, um, who has been dead, is raised to life. And so there's some sense that this family is not just some family, but that they are very close, they are very intimate in their relationship with Jesus. So we shouldn't imagine that this is like the first time he shows up. He probably has gone to their home, which, by the way, they say is Martha's home, which means she's probably the older sibling. Um, And so he comes in probably as he has done before. And Martha is busy making a meal for Jesus and his disciples here. And we know that Martha is extremely concerned that everything gets done. And Mary, on the other hand, has a different posture in these moments. Last week, we looked at the passage that most preachers ask us, what character in the story is us? And most preachers ask in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Are you a priest or Levite, or are you a good Samaritan who has compassion on those in need? And this week, it brings us to a very similar question. Who are we in the story? Are we Martha, or are we Mary? That's the way it's usually preached. But what happens is we usually evaluate this story based on who we are most like. 
It's based on our temperament or life experiences or whether we are the older or younger sibling or even our preferences for spiritual formation, whether we like service or whether we like to be alone and silent and contemplate. Are we more service-oriented like Martha or are we more intuitive? and contemplative like Mary. Well, let's look at Martha for a moment. She says to Jesus rather directly, which shows some sense of comfort with him, right? That she would voice this kind of a complaint. She says, Lord, don't you, we have to do this right, don't you care? That my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Good grief! Tell her to help me. Certainly an expression of agitation and exasperation. Clearly, she is not only blaming her sister, but she is aggravated that the Lord was encouraging Mary to neglect her duty. Neglect her duty. Remember that phrase. Well, we don't get to hear Martha's response to Jesus, but I can imagine her comeback. Well, Jesus, that's all well and good, but someone still has to do the dishes, right? It is curious, isn't it? But Jesus praises the one who appears to do nothing and counters the one who appears to do everything. I'm going to talk a little bit about philosophy. This is where you take a nap if you need to. <laughs> there is a guy named Aristotle. And he had some wonderful ideas that Christians have picked up. And one of the areas that um, he talked about was the fact that um, there are certain kind of characters in this life. And he said that there are people usually fall into one of four kind of characters, um, as in virtue or whatnot. And so here they are. The first is the vicious character. The vicious character is a person who knows what he or she ought to do, but chooses to do otherwise with no remorse whatsoever. And he labels those people as vicious. They don't care about morality. And they don't feel bad. Secondly, and I need to say that these words meant a different thing than in our context in the 21st century. So it's okay if you laugh. The incontinent character describes the person who knows what ought to be done, chooses, in fact, to do it, but always sort of fails to follow through and does not act the way that they decided they were going to act. We kind of know these people. 
They always say they're going to be there. They always say that they're going to do what they uh, are promising to do. And then when it comes, they're not there. Now, don't start pointing fingers at people in the room, okay? Then we have the continent character, which is a fascinating one. The continent character is closer to the ideal, but it misses the mark in terms of one's inner motivation. So this character knows the good that they ought to do, and in fact, does it. But there is a problem. They only do it out of a sense of duty. There's no joy in what they do. The continent character lives out of fear and out of a sense of shame if they don't do what they ought to do. Now, each of these three characters described above evidence some sort of lack for Aristotle of an internal harmony. And if a person lacks internal harmony, then they are not able to flourish as a human being. <clears throat> the only harmonious life is those who possess virtuous character. Virtuous character knows the good, does the good, and for the right reason, for the purpose of being virtuous. Not out of internal pressure or guilt or fear of punishment or even a promise of reward. The virtuous person acts in complete harmony with the knowledge he or she possesses and out of that internal temper or desire for good, they do it for the good's sake, or as Christians we might say, they do it for love's sake. And so according to Aristotle, and actually according to John Wesley, our internal motivation matters. We could do or behave in such a way that externally to us, people might see that we're doing a very good thing. But that internal motivation matters. And I believe that many Christians, I'll meddle, especially Nazarenes, have had the joy of life sucked right out of them because they are doing the right things for the wrong reason. They are stuck doing things out of a sense of duty. And what is the result? If we're only doing things out of a sense of obligation or out of a sense of duty, what's the result? Jesus talks about it a little bit here with Martha. She's distracted by many things. John Wesley uses a word, it's called dissipation. Dissipation, he wrote a whole sermon on dissipation. What is dissipation? 
dissipation is being distracted by what we do, being so busy, so hurried, that our center begins to dissipate into kind of a nothingness. That our heart begins to kind of dissipate. Something is kind of sucked out of us in that sense of duty and obligation. I fear that we have so focused on right action in our tradition that we have lost focus on right heartedness. Or we have also, of recent years, wanted to focus on right belief. We have to make sure that we get our beliefs correct. And so on one side, there are people, maybe of a particular generation, who want to make sure that we are orthodox, extremely important. And then on the other side, perhaps a younger generation, they're concerned about making sure that we do the right actions, that we help the poor, that we are interested in justice issues. So right belief or right action. And we have neglected the very heart of what it means to be Nazarene in its truest form. And that is that we are called by God to be right-hearted. The Greek is orthokardia. Our heart is right And we believe that when our heart is right, we will believe the right things and we will do the right things. It is out of our heart. And so this is the one thing that Mary gets right in her attention to. The ability to put those kind of distractions away to put them aside so that she can focus on Jesus with love and devotion. And so in a sense, and I'm absolutely sure you've never heard a preacher say this before, I want you to neglect your duty. (laughs) If duty is doing things, right things for the wrong reason that, that leads us to dissipation and distraction and burnout and sometimes bitterness, because nobody else is doing the dishes. We are doing the dishes, right? If that's what duty leaves us to, something is off. So neglect your duty and pick up 
devotion in its place. Devotion. Devotion to God. And so the question then becomes, um, how then do we develop virtuous character? How do we develop virtuous character? How do we fan that flame of devotion within us that Christ calls us to, to be attentive to him? How does our character change? Again, I think a lot of Nazarenes have gotten the theology that it's up to us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and work harder to be good, to be holy, to be righteous. But if the gospel is anything to us, we must remember that we are transformed from the inside out only through the grace of God. We cannot work our way into human flourishing. It only comes through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry I keep um, mentioning this guy named Wesley. I'm a Wesley scholar. That's what I teach. It's what I breathe. It's what I read and what I take in kind of comes out. He was a guy who lived in the 1700s. And he is the father of all of our Nazarene theology. So, Wesley has a term. And it really is an incredibly important concept. The term is the means of grace. I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, like many of you. And I intuitively knew from as far back as I can remember, in fact, I think they taught it in, in the nursery, that I was supposed to be perfect, that I was supposed to be holy. And as I grew, that goal was always there. Be holy, be perfect, be holy, be perfect. But it was really like that somebody took me up to an Olympic-sized swimming pool and said, all right, get to the other side, but no one taught me how to swim. I had the goal, I didn't have the means. And so when I got a hold of this idea of the means of grace, my life radically changed from a point of always feeling guilty of not being good enough to understanding how God and, and I work together in this dynamic so that my devotion to Christ results in his transformation of grace within my heart. Wesley said, by means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, actions ordained by God himself to be ordinary channels whereby he might convey to persons grace. He even says, sanctifying grace. 
So if you would imagine with me that God has all the grace that we need. We have it wrong if we think that God is stingy with grace. It's just kind of doling it out a little bit at a time. God has all the grace that we need. But how does that grace get to us? Wesley said, we open ourselves up to grace by doing particular things. It's not that we do the things to earn the grace, but it, we do the things to open up a channel by which the grace gets to us. So let me talk just a few minutes about what some of those are. And you probably know them, you just probably have never heard them described this way before. Wesley has 16 means of grace. That means every personality gets to have a favorite. This is the funnel by which God's justifying and sanctifying grace gets into our hearts. And certainly faith. We begin with faith. Um, he also talked about something called watching. Watching is going through life every day with your eyes attuned to the unseen. It's going through your day looking for the fingerprints of God. And when we do that, we receive grace. Next, denying ourselves. It's a good thing every once in a while to deny ourselves something. I like to tell my students, um, you say that you are completely devoted to God, completely um, committed to serving him with your whole life, that you are absolutely dependent on God. And then I ask them the question, how do you feel when you lose your phone? And there's this tension in the room immediately rises, right? We get anxious. We get nervous. We don't have our phone near us, right? There's anxiety that happens. So I'm picking on the phone. But there are lots of things, lots and lots of things that distract us. So then I ask them, um, what would happen if you didn't pray for three days? Would you feel any anxiety? Probably not. So what are you absolutely devoted to? <sighs> Taking up our cross daily. Sometimes we use that phrase, taking up our cross, as bearing some sort of illness. I've had a cough for three weeks. That's my cross to bear. Or I have this or that to do. I'm bearing my cross, taking it up. But if we stop and think, 
Jesus took up the cross absolutely on behalf of others. And so we would do well to understand that we take up our cross when we are sacrificing ourselves for others. And Wesley talked about lots of ways that we do that. Prayer, of course, is a means of grace. Prayer is the breath of the Christian life. If prayer is the breath of Christian life, Scripture is food for the Christian life. I also tell my students that I wish if I, if I could give them any gift, I would give them the sense that their Bibles are their food. And what happens if we stop eating? We eventually starve to death because food gives us nourishment and energy. Now, I'm told, of course, I've never tried, it's very obvious, um, that if you stop eating for a long time, you no longer feel hungry. But that doesn't mean that you're not still in the process of starving to death. But so many people believe that reading your Bible is your duty. And so if I could give my students a gift, I would give them a gift that, that the Bible is their food. Trust me, when they go to the cafeteria for lunch, they're not all like, oh, I've got to go eat. <laughs> and then at dinner time, we just ate four hours ago. I have to eat again. Scripture is food. And then it goes on to talk about uh, fasting, Christian conversations, and small groups, and prayer meetings, visiting the sick, reading classically um, written devotional stuff, Christian literature. Because we don't have to figure out the wheel all on our own. So just a few of the means of grace. So again, as we participate in these things, the grace of God enters into our hearts and transforms our nature and our character so that we do the right things out of devotion. The key is that uh, you could look at this and it looks an awful lot like a list of things to do out of duty. But if we look at it that way, we have completely undermined the point of grace. They are means that we do out of a heart of devotion. And the thing is, as we do them, we become more devoted to doing them because of grace. If this is a duty list, it's a dead list. If it's a devotional list, it will transform our hearts. Because all of these activities, 
Bring us to the feet of Jesus. It's not that Jesus is telling people not to do stuff. Martha had made his dinner. But if she had performed that out of a sense of love and devotion, it might not have led her to her frustration. And so as we do the things of Christian faith, may God transform us to be freed from a sense of guilt, freed from a sense that if we don't do these things, bad things will happen. May we be freed to fully engage with our right hearts to receive what God has for us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for grace this morning. I pray that you would deepen our understanding that all we are is because of what you have done for us. And our response of devotion to you is out of a heart of thanksgiving. Free us from a sense of distraction that often takes us to negative places. Fill our hearts anew with love for you, O Christ. Amen.